ad astra is Latin for to the stars, which is where a consensus of economists believes the Chinese economy is heading. After being the only large economy to record any growth in GDP for 2020, economists are forecasting 8% more for this year. Indeed, Beijing's skillful management of the COVIDs has convinced two economic research centers, one in Japan, the other in Britain, to forecast that China's economy will become the world's largest by 2028. There are three problems, including the surreal acceleration in debt and a shrinking working age population, but more fundamentally, that GDP in China is a political input, not an economic output. The party picks a growth rate in December, and any shortfall between economic activity is filled in by uneconomic activity by year-end. With nothing written off, GDP is whatever Beijing wants it to be. The Chinese growth miracle is neither Chinese nor a miracle. Instead, it is a growth model employed by dozens of countries throughout the past century. The initial growth is so impressive that it's seductive to extrapolate the model's benefits and fail to account for the costs, which come at the end in the form of a rapid write-down, as was the case with the United States after the 1920s, or prolonged stagnation, as was the Brazilian experience after the 1970s. The Soviet Union followed this policy and grew its economy to 20% of world GDP in 1966, prompting famed economist Paul Samuelson to predict that it would surpass the U.S. as early as 1984. Noted academic Ezra Vogel's best-selling 1978 book, Japan is Number One, similarly failed to anticipate the coming bill. The party very well may achieve its vainglorious goals. But at what cost? If past experience is any guide, expect Ad Terra, not Ad Astra. But that is for the second half of episode 44. First, we discuss the similarities between the 19th and 20th centuries long and great depressions to present day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Making Sense, a Euro Dollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm talking to Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, we're going to discuss an article that got posted on January 22nd for Real Clear Markets, and it was called They Can't See the Dire Economic Situation for What It Really Is. Did I get that title right? You got the title right. That's absolutely correct. That's all I'm here for, just the title, and I'm going to leave the rest up to you. Jeff, what did you write about? Well, we're talking about the long depression and the Gilded Age and inequality and all sorts of labor market upset and upheaval, and really the story about where did the modern unemployment rate come from. And it really, it really came out of essentially struggling to understand not just unemployment, but what the hell was, what were these industrial depressions that for the first time had become a widespread significant phenomenon across the entire country, not just the country, but at that time around the rest of the industrialized world. These were relatively new to human experience. And the one in the 1870s that began in the 1870s was something that just kind of lingered on for a very long time, which is why the term Gilded Age itself has a, such a pejorative negative connotation with it because it, it represented an era where if you did well, you did really well, 
But what about everybody else who didn't? And the numbers of people who didn't experience the kind of advance in societal progress were just indeed way too much, way too large. And obviously the audience can hear and see the connection immediately to our time right now. It reads as if we were talking about the 21st century. Jeff, you introduce us to a man named Samuel Gompers, and you say that he was one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, figures in American labor. Who was he? What did he do? And tell us about this long, not the long, I'm sorry, this 1873 to 1878 period, which as you know, was the longest downturn in American history. In terms of time, it was, you know, the, even now the NBR says it was 65 months peak to trough, which is, I mean, 65 months is more than five years, which is an unbelievable level of economic contraction to take place. And it wasn't all contraction, but it was lack of recovery up until that point. Any even modest rebound had been absent. And what that meant was, you know, Samuel Gomper's experience was unbelievable economic misery. And I think one of the, one of the uh, charitable groups in New York City said, well, it might be as much as a quarter of all workers in New York City were, were unemployed. And therefore, you know, they were running around with nothing to do, creating all sorts of social problems, societal problems. In which led Gompers in later years, and you know, a decade later, to be to uh, basically kick off the American labor movement with the creation of the American Federation of Labor in 1886. But it was really about his experience during this long depression, where you know, unemployment was widespread. It was not just in New York City; it was everywhere. And not more than that, it didn't seem like you could escape it. We had no idea where it came from. Most people didn't have any idea what what was going on. And it just seemed like this massive economic disease had befouled the entire country. And not, again, not just the entire country, but the entire industrialized world. And so it was a recipe for all sorts of social upheaval because widespread misery that didn't seem to ever want to end and no explanation for what was going on. You mentioned that the words tramp and bum came into use at that time. And then there's also a moment here when you you detail how Gompers was uh, talking about a friend of his who during that misery, during the winter of 1876, was forced to uh, eat the family dog. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, the term tramp and bum were, uh, were initially used to refer to these large groups of Civil War veterans who would simply, you know, go from place to place as a group and camp, you know, and, and uh, camp to try to get some kind of mostly private relief, but also to agitate for government relief too, because they didn't know what else to do. Again, this was, this was a new phenomenon for them to experience and nobody really had any answers. And what they kept finding is nobody else had any answers either. And that's just, it, it was just a recipe for all sorts of social upheaval, as well as creating the conditions for why, you know, this, this particular industrial depression would be remembered as the long depression, because it didn't seem to want to ever go away. Well, there was someone who thought it wasn't as bad as it was being made out to be, and that maybe Gompers was exaggerating. Can you tell us a little bit about Carol D. Wright? Well, Carol Wright, I, you know, he knew this was a disaster, but what he was really interested in was saying, look, 
if we want to figure this thing out, we need to be honest about what's really going on. And at the time, it was quite natural for labor leaders like Gompers or what Gompers would become to essentially say, look, this is really bad and inflate the, the number of the negative numbers so as to make his case better. Labor agitation often used, you know, ridiculous statistics to, to try to say, look, the, the entire system needs to be rewritten because it's that bad. And what Carol Wright said was, well, we don't really know how bad it is, so let's figure this out. And so he was appointed the successor for the Massachusetts Bureau of Labor Statistics, which was the first in the nation. And he inaugurated what became what we were familiar with today as the you know, current employment survey, essentially. He surveyed town assessors and said, look, go out and count the number of unemployed people in your town and report back to me what the number actually is. And what they found out was the common statistics cited at the time, which was just a wild guess, was that there had been 3 million unemployed Americans in, I think it was 1876, which was sort of the depth of the depression, which in terms of percentage would have rivaled the 1930s. It would have been that bad, a really long and deep depression. And a quarter, a quarter million of those were thought to live in Massachusetts alone, which is where uh, Carol Wright was working. But in his initial survey, he only found 22,000. So he said, look, yeah, this is a problem, but it may not be as big a problem as it seems. And what he did was he created the method by which we do the modern unemployment rate, where it actually comes from. He said, we're going to categorize workers, not just as are you employed or are you unemployed, but why are you unemployed? Why aren't you working? Is it because you're not looking for work? Is it because you don't think you can find a job at the rate you at the wage rate you want to receive? And so he kind of started to classify so that he could understand what was really going on in the economy, and especially the role that wages were playing in uh, the unemployment. And then you're quoting from several sources here. And in one of them, you are asking, well, you're making the point about diminishing profits of many industries conducted with little or no margin to those managing them. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, the quote that you just used, Emil, is from what became the, the Bureau of Labor, which is the National Bureau of Labor's first annual report. Because as uh, the Depression lingered on into the 1880s, Chester A. Arthur's administration, along with Congress, decided we got to do something about this unemployment problem. And so they gave Carol Wright the, uh, the job as the first director of the National Bureau of Labor, which was then housed under the Department of Interior, and said, hey, figure out this depression stuff for us because we don't know what the hell's going on and it doesn't seem to be going away. This is the middle 1880s now. And so the Bureau of Labor put out their first annual report, which is an amazing, amazing report, stocked full of all sorts of tables and data of, of you know, really fine detail, all the kinds of things that you can't get, you know, about the 1830s and 40s and 50s and 60s. And they really made an honest effort to figure out these, quote unquote, industrial depressions. Where did they come from? Why did they last? What was really going on? And what they came to the what they said was, look, in one sense, it's not as bad as people make it out to be. It's not like the economy just collapsed and just went to zero. Everything just zeroed out and everything stopped. That's not what really this depression has been. It's that we suffered a shock. We suffered a setback. Shock is a modern term. But they said we suffered a setback. And then we could never get out of it. We could never get a recovery out of it. It just was, it was an unstable situation because we could never really get that kind of economic growth that we had before the 1873 bank panic. And that was the other thing, right? 
where did this shock, where did the initial uh, problem come from? Where does, was that inflection? It was in the Panic of 1873, which in the United States led to, you know, had to do with railroad overbuilding and Jay Cook's failure. But there was also an international component with the failure in, in Vienna and across the rest of the industrialized world too. But by and large, what they said was, we looked at all the data, there was deflation, but it didn't lead to an entire, a complete collapse of the entire system. What it did was it robbed us of an upside. The American economy grew by, you know, grew, did gangbusters in the middle of the 19th century. We had this bank panic in 1873, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't that it contracted from there, is that there was a lack of growth from there. We had no upside to look forward to and therefore absorb these however many uh, uh, unemployed that there are throughout the country. But the long depression would last even beyond when that report was written. Isn't that right? When was the report actually finished? The, the first annual report was written in 1886. And by you know, some people's definitions, the long depression didn't end until 1896. So it was a 20 year period Again, and I think that's one reason why it's not really well recognized is because it doesn't conform to our thought of what does depression, what does the depression look like? Everybody thinks the depression is 1929, 1930, 1931, where things are just collapsing at an unbelievable rate and it doesn't look like anything, you know, it looks like the world is ending. That's not really what a depression is. A depression is a prolonged period of, at times, stagnation. It's where we can't seem to get growth that we used to take for granted. And so... You know, lots of people have put forward explanations for what happened in the 1870s, but what we all what we know for sure is that it started with the usual bank panic, monetary interruption, and therefore gave off these deflationary symptoms, which persisted for very long periods of time. And talking about you know what we talked about last time with the bond bubble, you know the very the best fundamentals for high high uh, high prices of the safest, most liquid instruments. It was prolonged period of at best stagnation that was punctuated by ups and downs, you know, uh, in, you know, contractions and what seemed like recoveries, but the recoveries that never would seem to, they never, never went anywhere. Uh, I've been really recently enjoying a book by uh, Richard Vague called uh, A Brief History of Doom. I finished it. And uh, basically it's a tour of 43 financial crises of, in the six largest economies over the last 200 years. And that's absolutely right. So there's the, crisis of 1873 in the United States and the rest of the world, at least the advanced economies. But then it would continue. There would be another one in 1882 that touched off in France. Uh, then it showed up in Japan, same year, 1882, in the United States. And you had the 1884 crisis that began, in, I believe it lasted for three years until 1887. That one was terrible. And then you had another one. 1893. And then the 1893 one was perhaps, it was as terrible as, you know, how you said the, uh, the 1873 crisis lasted 65 months, at least by one account, the 1893 crisis was the deepest one. So it was just this one after another. And I remember, and here it comes up in this book, that Coxey's army came into being, which was a group of unemployed that started out as a hundred men in Ohio and grew to 500 by the time it reached Washington. Another uh, source says that it was several thousand that were camped outside of Washington and that uh, the organizers were arrested 
It seems so similar to what happened recently in the Capitol. And in fact, uh, there were more people on their way to Washington. One group commandeered a train on their, wa- on their way to Washington. And uh, you know, federal agents had to beat them and throw them out. And this was one year before the Pullman uh, crisis, the, the big confrontation the in Pullman that we've discussed before. So, uh, you know, was it a, a depression like the way we think of in... Uh, in the 1930s, or perhaps the silent one that we're living through now, I don't know. You know, economically speaking, if the the data matches, but it seems like there are so many similar sounding events that took place. Yeah, and I think it's our modern mind has colored by the modern the post war economy, which only experiences recession, which is different. We think of a contraction as a temporary deviation from otherwise unbroken potential. Milton Friedman's puck plucking model, for example, and that's not really what we, we should. We, what we have observed in the throughout the global economy since 2008, it has been the opposite. It has been very much like a long depression, right? It's that. It's not that the economies collapsed and went to zero. Went, you know, continue minus a sea of minus signs forever forward. That's not been the case at all. GDP has been positive and it hits record levels, but the rate of growth has changed. It's something it's changed substantially to the point where there's been it, the last dozen, 13 years have been characterized by the lack of upside. We don't see we have an economic inflection at a global dollar financial panic. And following it, we have this unstable economy, intermittent crises and a lack of upside throughout the rest of the economy, which meets the, the certainly the definitions that were put forward by the first annual report of the, of the, uh, the Bureau of Labor under Carol Wright, which is a, that it's not a recession. It's a prolonged change, a prolonged serious change that is, you know, in some ways even worse and more hideous and insipid. And it's not only an economic one, according to Wright's report. He said that, an industrial depression is a mental and moral malady, which sounds absolutely correct. And it reminds me of what we heard in Japan about trying to break the depressionary mindset. And as you make the point, it sounds like something straight out of Jay Powell and the, the modern day economic thinking. Yeah, which is that we need to we need to focus on emotion and sentiment. We need to break people of their negative thoughts in order to them get them thinking, you know, what John Maynard Keynes called the you know, animal spirits, right? It's all about risk taking. And that's true. It's absolutely true. They they observed it right up close in the, during the long depression that there was there was an emotional component to all these things. But why do people develop these negative emotions? Where do they come from? Where are these restraining feelings and sentiments? Where do they derive from? And what uh, Carol Wright said and what most people realize today is that, look, when you have uncertainty and instability, those combined are the ingredients for this, you know, as they said in Japan, this deflationary mindset to take hold and can continue. It really goes back to uncertainty and instability. So the answer that, you know, some of the answers that put forward in the first annual report by the Bureau of Labor, as well as what we hear about today, are somewhat wrong. It's like, you know, quantitative easing, money printing, getting moral suasion about inflation. These are not answers for instability. They don't create stability. They create what they think is the opposite force of instability that seems to be more helpful. And so, you know, even from the most basic level, 
even if you give the Federal Reserve and, and, and governments credit for what they're doing, it may not be the right thing just from the fact that they're not, they're not trying to foster an environment of stability. They're trying to fight one form of instability with another. And that, you know, I think the results speak for themselves because they don't even pass the smell test. Well, Jeff, before we wrap up your Real Clear Markets essay, I wanted to share with you in the audience a few graphs that I had just recently completed where I compared real GDP per capita to the Long Depression and the Great Depression to present day. So let me pull that up right now. So what I'm showing for the audience that's listening only is uh, I've got a graph and the y-axis is an index of 100 and uh, 100 represents the year before the depression started, our three depressions. And then along the bottom, I've got uh, along the x-axis, I've got each year. So, you know, uh, let's talk about our silent depression. 2006 would be year zero. 2007 is the year began. That would be year one on these graphs. And then I've got a graph of basically real GDP per capita for 28 countries. I've only got 16 up here, but I'm just going to go through a few of them. And basically what we see is that we're right now we're in year 2020. That's 14 years on the graph here. We're in year 14. And the question is, where do we find ourselves in year 14 in the silent depression compared to the Great Depression and then the Long Depression. And if we weren't in a depression, then we should be well clear of where real GDP per capita was in those previous definite depressions. And so the first one you know, I'm showing Emil, here- You know what, the, you know what the, the most striking part of that graph is, is not where we are now, but where we were the year before. I mean, you can blame the, the, current, the current drop in GDP on COVID and, and that kind of thing. But you can see even before we got to 2020, how we were languishing behind both of these previous depressions. And that's, that's really, I think, the point is that this is not a 2020 thing. This is not a COVID thing. This is something that's been going on for a very long time. That's right. And we were looking at Britain right there. But I'll do the spoiler here. Britain, the United States, Canada, and Australia – they're all below eat both depressions right now as of 2020, but they were there in 2019 as well. And even yeah. if they weren't, they're, so, they're right in the middle. They're, you know, they're part of this depressionary, um, what, eras. Of the compar- it's a great comparison. We can look at Brazil. Brazil is one country that's doing, quote, unquote, better than the other two depressions, or at least it had been up to 2014. But not enough but, better, right? Yeah, that's, well, and no, that's the other thing. Yeah, and it doesn't look good for next year. It yeah. doesn't look good. And then we can look at Japan. And of course, with Japan, you've got the whole World War II thing happening with the Great Depression. But Japan is doing b- worse than both depressions, both previous two depressions. You can go to Portugal. You can go to South Africa, uh, Chile, Greece. And, you know, there's different stories for uh, the European countries, depending on which one was involved and what side during World War II. But look at Finland. Finland had a pretty good Great Depression after the first couple of years were over. The Long Depression wasn't too bad for Finland. But holy cow, the Silent Depression is an absolute disaster. They're at the same point they were 14 years ago. There's Germany, Sweden, Romania. If anyone wants Sri Lanka, just let me know. I've got that one too. Uh, I know. I can't believe why Sri Lanka, there's all these countries that should have data. 
Uh, but not all of them have data going back to the 1870s. Sri Lanka is one of them that does. I can't believe. Oh, I guess the, I guess it's because of the British. Uh, yeah. Jeff- well, look, our point here is that it's not that we're in a Great Depression or we're in the long, the, you know, the Long Depression. Is that what's going on today looks too much like them and not enough unlike them. We're not experiencing the upside that we have taken for granted up until 2008. And I argue in the article that it's even worse than that because people have gotten this false sense of euphoria. They even think that the economy has been booming, especially in the United States, that things have been really good. Look at the unemployment rate. It's really low. So not only do we have – what's that? The stuff – our last president, President Trump – it was the first or second thing on the Council of Economic Advisors website was the first was either employment or if it wasn't, it was the stock market that was listed first. It's up. The unemployment rate is down. Boom. The best. Yeah. That, it, it, this false impression of how things are going. And, and I think that, again, going back to the, the 1870s and the Gilded Age, why people, there was so much uh, misery and so much um, dissatisfaction, political and social upheaval because they didn't have answers. And that that rings true to today, too, because, again, most people are sort of unaware of the kind of condition that we associate with. We're associated with depressions. We're associated with a lack of upside, an unstable system that can go on for a very, very long time. I think that's the overriding point by comparing with these other uh, periods in history is that they can go along, go on a lot longer than you think they can. You know, under the, if we think about the only recessions, which are very short and temporary, that's the difference. That's really the difference here is that this is not a recession. 2008, the Great Recession was not a Great Recession at all. It was it was an inflection point that kicked off an uh, an era of lack of upside. You know who does have upside, Jeff, and that's the country that we're going to discuss next in part two of this episode, and that's China. It may be the only country, or at least the largest country, a large country, perhaps some countries in Africa, didn't have a downturn at all in 2020. China, its GDP has grown year over year. That's unlike any other country uh, that's a large economy. And maybe they're doing it right. So let's talk about them in part two. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, is your failure to rescue the economy from a long depression afflicted you with a mental and moral malady? Do you find yourself in a deflationary mindset despite never setting foot in Japan? Then a new supply of organic heroin from Eurodollar Enterprises is for you! Yes, experience the euphoria of the great moderation again with a taste of the white horse. Free range, of course. Looking to escape a lost decade? Medicaid with gluten-free brown sugar. Is your depression great? Are the animal spirits gone? Fret not. We supply non-GMO black tar cut with the purest paracetamol. Organic heroin, new from Eurodollar Enterprises may cause infection of both the lining and valves of the heart, liver or kidney disease, collapse veins, abscesses, pneumonia, and constipation. Do not use if sane. Uh, recently, China announced its big three economic accounts. And Jeff, did they announce the big three economic accounts? The usual? Yes, they announced those plus GDP because it's you know January, so it's the fourth quarter of 2020. Data is in. And... All across Twitter, it was all about how China managed to turn their economy around, how 
It's the Beijing consensus, no longer the Washington consensus. The communists know how to do capitalism better because their economy grew by 2.9%. Yeah, I guess that's low compared to the recent years, but we had the corona. So they're the only country that really grew strongly or at all. And uh, Jeff, what did you write about in your article? Well, it's, we're back to the cleanest, dirty shirt argument, right? Where that, that was supposed to be where the United States was for all those years during the, uh, the aftermath of the 2008 recession. And now all of a sudden the Chinese seem to be very, uh, very intent upon grabbing the same label for themselves. They have been made, they had made a, a major push when they announced these statistics to say exactly what you said. Look <laughs> at us. We're growing. We didn't suffer a, step, a setback in 2020 except for the initial first quarter. Ever since then, we're back on the plus side again. And, and uh, what's, what's happened amongst Western commentaries, that's been extrapolated into only really good things from China in 2021 going forward. And in fact, a lot of the reflationary and even inflationary uh, pulse supposedly in the global economy is derived from how good China is going to be by pulling everyone else out of their COVID malaise too, because the Chinese have figured out a way to manage themselves through this mess. At least that's the narrative. And that's the story. Do the statistics actually back up that story? That's really the question. It's true that the Chinese economy grew for full year 2020, but even in the fourth quarter, the fourth quarter year over year rate was just six and a half percent, which was up modestly from where it had been in the couple quarters before. And it was already, decelerating its deceleration, its second derivative. So in other words, it, it was still advancing an accelerating rate, but the level of accelerated acceleration has declined too, which basically says that, okay, 6.5% is not a really good number because if we can remember just from a couple years ago, even in 2019, where the Chinese growth rates were getting into the six and everybody was scratching their heads in anxious worry about what was this going to represent? This is downside stuff. So if 6.5% is sort of what we're going to get out of China, that's a very different story. But a lot of people are saying, oh, 6.5%, next year is going to be even better. And so where do, where do we turn? Where do we, where do we find answers to this? Uh, well, first of all, let's mention that you said, I said exactly what the, the communist propaganda arms did for in Beijing. And that gives me hope should this uh, YouTube podcast never work out, I can get a job uh, as a spokesman for the communists. And I think that'd be something that I would be proud of, uh, or mother would be very proud of, of course. Uh, I'm going to have to cut out that joke. She would definitely not be proud of that. Uh, Jeff, you were saying, so a lot of people are saying in the press that this is great, but you know one person who isn't, and uh, that's Michael Pettis, who you had been at a conference at together a couple of years ago, a few years ago, at the Cayman Investment Forum, um, and he was on Twitter and he said that it was driving him nuts, my words, that uh, people were saying that this is a good result in any way. And he said that something along the lines of like people are saying this is good, uh, that a good GDP number means the economy in China is good. No, nothing about GDP nor about the economy. And uh, he made the analogy that it's like as if you were taking methamphetamine and then you ran very quickly, and that means you're healthy. He said that uh, the Chinese, the Chinese economy did well, quote unquote, by emphasizing all of the terrible things, by investing in fixed asset infrastructure, 
that they don't need. So more unproductive fixed asset investment. Uh, they believe. Yeah, if you look at if you look at the big three Chinese accounts, um, retail sales in particular, it's not good. In fact, retail sales, uh, the retail sales growth rate dropped in December from November, having you know still around what would have been before this last year, among the the lowest on record. So Chinese Chinese consumer spending hasn't roared back to life at all. It's barely on life support, and so. What's happened to give China at least even just six and a half percent growth rate in the fourth quarter is what Michael, Mr. Pettis said, which is that the Chinese are doing modest levels of stimulus, modest levels of wasteful spending, trying to get things back moving again. And it only looks good by comparison to everyone else. And so if you are the cleanest, dirty shirt and everybody else is completely soiled and muddy and bloody and everything else, and yeah, maybe that, that maybe that sounds like a relatively good good situation to be in, but underneath all of that, you know, interpretation, the reality is that China is actually being very sluggish. The economy is coming back slowly, and in many ways, that's going according to their plan. Now we have talked about this a lot of times. We talked about the 19th Party Congress back in 2017 quite a lot, because in the 19th Party Congress. Xi Jinping in the Chinese Communist upper echelon basically said, China's not going to grow anymore. At least it's not going to grow it the way it used to. And that has all sorts of implications outside of China as well as inside. Now, inside of China, we've, we've talked about and we've, we've, we've documented before this increasing authoritarianism, which is necessary from the perspective of Xi Jinping, because when you turn off economic growth, or you have economic growth turned off for you, that changes the internal political calculations of potentially a dangerous situation with a population that has put up with an awful lot over the last three decades, only for the promise of being transported or their children transported to these glittering new cities and, and obtaining a middle-class lifestyle. If the communist authorities suddenly say, we're full, no more, what happens to the hundreds of millions of essentially peasants, subsistence farmers who are left on the outside have put up with all this crap. And now their government is saying, no more, we're done. This is the way it is. Now you can see why you, without, without sympathetic, without sympathizing with Xi Jinping, but you can understand why they're doing what they're doing, which includes cracking down on Hong Kong because they're enforcing their authoritarian impulse, given the fact that they have announced years ago, economic growth paradigm is different in China. And so what we see now of the economy of coming out of 2020 is exactly the same thing. They announced, the PBOC in particular announced what they called a no sharp turn policy, which basically says that, you know, we're here. We've, we've recovered from COVID. This is the recovery. We're at our potential. Therefore, don't expect us to do a hell of a lot more to increase stimulus and to increase growth in 2020, 2021 and moving forward. They're basically consistent with the post-19th Party Congress doctrine of we're going to get as much growth as we're going to get, and we're just going to try to deal with the fallout. And that's really what they said about the fourth quarter was this is it. This is 6.5% isn't the first step toward better days. 6.5% is the end. That's the recovery. We've reached potential. The uh, the retail sales numbers that you cited, it reminds me a little bit of the 2008-2009 story because Retail sales are a, a proxy for consumption or what share of the economy does the household, the average household have? 
And by pushing it so low, China was already at surreal levels right now. And so the estimates are that this great recovery was by pushing even further, repressing the households so that they have uh, consumption will be down like to 40% or something to just give people an idea. That is a unbelievably low number. A low normal number is like 50% and most other economies are around 60%. And it just goes to say that the average yeah. Chinese, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say that's, you know, that's, that's, that was the whole point of the post 2011, you know, the idea to restart the Chinese growth under a different model, which was, rectifying that situation, right? If, if consumption is only 50% of GDP, we need to get it up to 60%, which means mm -hmm. China was going to grow not from its export sector because the global growth was completely collapsed. And we talked about that before, the silent depression and lack of upside everywhere else. And so the Chinese said, well, okay, we can't depend on the rest of the world for economic growth. We're going to do it ourselves internally. We're going to rebalance the economy to a more of a consumer-led model. And that never happened either. And in fact, 2020 only exacerbated the difference and exacerbated this this disequilibrium, which, as you pointed out, suppressed the, the proportion of consumer spending even that much more. So even as they they tried desperately, it's called dual circulation nowadays, but it's still the same thing. We're going to try to get the internal Chinese economy to make up for what we can't get externally. But even doing that in 2020 was a complete and utter failure because they didn't increase the level of internal economic growth. In fact, it was suppressed. It was suppressed by COVID, but as well, uh, not just COVID, but also the economic uh, negative factors and negative pressures that have built up inside the Chinese system too. So it may be that, okay, people are saying 6.5% GDP growth in the fourth quarter is the first step toward better days. The government's saying 6.5% is potential, but given what we see in retail sales and even fixed asset investment on the private side, it may be that 6.5% is actually <laughs> a sugar high. They might be the best number we'll see in some time. It's, and I know Western expectations are for better 2021, but there are enormous downside risks here, starting with the official position. It's not a sugar high. It's a black tar heroin high. <laughs> there, <laughs> I'll trust you to know your, drug, your drugs. <laughs> oh, I'm not, obviously, everyone knows black tar heroin. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so the debt to GDP ratio is expected to go up by 25% this year. That is, you know, bad. Bad is a 15 to 20% increase over a five-year period. Uh, the book I was citing earlier, Richard Vague's A Brief History of Doom. When you see that taking place over a five-year period, bad. A one-year period, that's off the charts. That's a black tar heroin high. And I think that 2020 will serve as the pinnacle as the year that China's GDP is a proportion of global GDP will probably have reached its apex. And I'm expecting to see what we saw with, uh, with Japan in the 90s and the Soviet Union in the 70s, early 70s, when their economies were booming, just like the United States in the 1920s, booming on an unsustainable industrial policy and that's, you know, so in your article, you said... Well, no, what you're saying really backs up the no sharp turns policy because the Chinese are, are keenly aware of the financial risks that they're building up by doing these, uh, quote unquote, stimulus, even modest stimulus. You look, at, you look at the actual fiscal spending and monetary policy in 2020, and it was nothing compared to even 2016. 
So the Chinese are very much aware of their financial risk. They don't want to be Japan in 1990. They're trying to avoid that at all costs. And so what you just said, Emil, exactly the reason why they come up with this no sharp turn policy is, look, they want to cut back as much as they possibly can and hope that the real economy grows. And in fact, that's what the, you know, going back to the 14th, uh, five party, or 14th five-year plan that was put forward also recently, they're saying, look, we're in a bad spot. We're going to develop a bunch of new technologies that we can't even describe or even talk about. Hopefully that's going to be the answer. So they've put off any, any even, you know, idea of econ real economic growth into the future, hoping they can R&D their way to it in the meantime. So they're very much aware of their financial imbalances. And that's really what the authorities have been saying over the last couple of years is that we're going to try to manage this decline, this lack of economic growth as best we can, and just hope that we can invent stuff to get us out of this fix. The other of the, the, other of the big three accounts, we got fixed asset investments. So let's call that infrastructure, retail sales that uh, we'll call that as a proxy for consumption. The other one is industrial production manufacturing, and I know it's not a great proxy, but I like to think of it as uh, kind of the export sector, you know, manufacturing, and then you, you ship it out. And recently, the Chinese rang in a great, for them, current account surplus or trade surplus. And that's fine. That's sustainable in a global expansion, not in an economic depression. And it's, and it's my understanding that as a percentage of global GDP, the surplus, the trade surplus that China just earned is one of the three biggest in the last hundred years. And Jeff, the other two big ones was the United States in the late 1920s and Japan in the early 1990s. Uh, you know, not- Yeah, those are warning signs, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> This is it's, an imbalance that's not, you can't depend on this. Imbalance, that's the word I want to use. Yeah. It's not, these are not good numbers and they're grotesque distortions. This should be, there should be a rebalancing that we should see. But, and that's, that it's, rebalancing. It's like when you see, a, you know, a, a metal or steel, a steel plate that's under pressure or constant motion that starts to develop a crack. That's what this, this is telling you that there's a crack in the formation, or a crack in the uh, the fundamental foundation of the of that that piece of metal or whatever it is. And what we're talking about here is a key part of the Chinese economic system, not just as it relates to the economy, but also to their monetary needs, which are a constant inflow of dollars. And look at. As we've talked about before, we're already suspicious of the dollar situation in China to begin with, regardless of what CNY is doing against the dollar, because for all that massive merchandise export, uh, the merchandise surplus, um, where are the dollars? Where are the big money that should be showing up at the PBO's, BBOC's balance sheet? Where is it? It's safe. Where, where, what's going on here? And so there's a lot that says that there's the, the, this is, a, as you pointed out, Emil, it's a warning. It's not, it's not something you hang your hat on and think about better days ahead. Uh, Jeff, some, some people say that the dollars that are coming in from this export surplus are showing up on the balance sheets of the private banking system. Uh, would that change your view about uh, the monetary warning signals coming out of China, if that were true? If if that were true, I don't think it is because I don't see them certainly not on the balance sheet of the big four. And even if it was true, they would end up at the PBOC too. Because remember how the PBOC operates as exchange controls. 
it's not the CNY is not freely floating. It sets a, it sets a, a limited daily trading band, which requires if it exceeds that uh, the limits put put in place by the PBOC to step into the market and take those dollars off the market. And so if we saw an excess of dollars flowing into the China through merchandise trade, as well as financial flows, which would be the bigger, bigger flow, um, we would expect to see the PBOC end up with a big, big slice of the dollars showing up or dollars coming in. And they're just not there. Jeff, before I ask you a final question regarding your article, if there's anything we haven't covered, what do you think at the sum going off script now, uh, what do you think of the appreciating and or strong currency uh, in China? That certainly doesn't seem to be, I don't, that doesn't seem to be good for China, right? You've got debt that's exploding higher and you've got a strengthening currency and you don't have money expansion internally, right? because the dollars are not flowing in, I would think you would want more money coming in, a lower currency to help take the pressure off off the debt. Uh, Is that something to be worried about? Should I be, you know, am I right to be worried that a strengthening currency isn't healthy for their their debt situation? Well, yeah, that's true in one sense. But look, I think the, the, the overriding factor here, at least from the Chinese perspective, is that when the currency goes up, their dollars flow in. So that, that would be number one. Mm-hmm. And so if you're trying to entice dollars into your economy, what do you have to do? You have to convince the euro dollar market and the banks that operate within it to lend back into your economy in the way that they haven't been over the last five, six years. And so one, one of the ways you would want to do that is by saying, look, our, our system is strong enough that it, we're not going to see persistent problems in the future. We're not going to have economic uncertainty that's going to make you want to pull your dollars out and reduce the currency, right? That's what, whenever we see dollar shortage, that means CNY goes down against the dollar. And so they're really trying to convince the euro dollar market, hey, look, everything's fine in China. Look at the currency going up. It's a, it's, it's a signal that whatever's going on in the rest of the world, it's good here. At least it's relatively, be- it's the cleanest, dirty shirt in China. Therefore, bring your dollars back because everything is better here than any place else. And it's the same exact kind of thing that we talked about before. It's the same exact kind of thing we saw in 2017 where CNY's currency went up and we couldn't, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of basis for it. And it was the Chinese authorities saying, just bring your dollars here. And so what we have in 2021 is we have a strong CY currency, but a sort of a, I don't want to say a mystery, but an unfilled in picture of why that is and where it's actually coming from. Jeff, any final thoughts on this article or anything in general that you wanted to share with the audience? I think it's just, it's really, it's about the story, the narrative that we're, we're 2021 is going to be this inflationary, really good upside that everything is moving in the right direction. It's on the it, everything is falling in line with the favorable inflationary positive column, including vaccines, including, you know, government stimulus all throughout the world and central banks doing even more, 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 whatever it is. And the fact of the matter is we ended 2020 in a shape that even, you know, going back to May or June of last year, we never thought we would be in. You know, the, first of all, going, you know, May, when things were, were reopening, it was widely believed that there would be a V-shaped recovery and everything would be easy and we'd get right back to normal. That, that hasn't been anywhere near close to that. So we ended 2020 in really, and again, the Chinese numbers are representative of this. We, we ended last year in probably worse shape than anybody had imagined. 
And so there was all of those things that happened in 2020 that are going to happen again in 2021 to lead to a different outcome. That's really the question. I think it's, it's it really people should be wondering why doing the same things this year will, will eventually create what it didn't last year. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Let's do it again soon. All right. Take care, Emil.